Welcome, one and all, to Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hailing frequencies are open. Well, we're not going to get out of this problem by not talking about it. Strange New Worlds, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for the season one finale, episode 110, A Quality of Mercy, comes to you now via time crystal stuff. <laughs> Pete, the end of this season, almost the end of the Ms. Marvel season. Just a couple days ago, we were talking episode five. That's your penultimate episode of the season. Looking for a big finish on Wednesday. And uh, speaking of timey wiminess, just a reminder that we're going to be podcasting that season finale, not on our normal Friday spot, but on Saturday, this upcoming Saturday for Ms. Marvel episode six. So get us your feedback there. Make sure you're aware of that slightly extended deadline. Uh, moving on tomorrow, Pete, we will be talking Thor Love and Thunder, uh, which has come in uh, A, super healthy box office. B, kind of did what I thought it would do. Uh, more on that when we talk about it. But uh, the deadline to uh, get your feedback in would be, uh, I don't know, middle of the day tomorrow. I, I think regardless of where you live in this world, middle of the day tomorrow probably is the, the red line feedback time. So looking forward to hearing from people, Pete. The Star Trek Universe San Diego Comic-Con uh, panel. Give, give me the lineup, Pete. I'm so excited. All my favorite Star Trek shows. Go. <laughs> You've got your Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Yes. Uh, you know, just having wrapped season two, Matt. You've got your Star Trek Lower Decks. Oh, bring it on. Yes. There's still no date yet. Maybe that's when date they announced. Date to be announced, right? Oh, exciting. Two okay. to go, Pete. You've got your uh, in the torpedo tube Star Trek Picard for season three. Yes, maybe coming between now and Thanksgiving, something like that. Okay, Pete, and the 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 the, the grand dame of them all. There are apparently no flights from Toronto to San Diego. Yeah, um, I get that season two of Strange New Worlds is filmed and they're working on post production. I get that Picard has been done. Shoot, for how long now, Pete? Probably four months, if not more. Yeah. Um, so for them to hit a full time release date makes sense. I know that work on lower decks, uh, has, you know, basically been in constant production for the last several years, but this season, uh, will be ready to go, whether it's summer, fall, whatever it might be. I understand discovery has just only recently started to film, but no discovery at all at San Diego comic-con does feel like a little bit of a, uh, a Vulcan hello, if you will. Uh, wisely chosen there um i get it they're in production and maybe there's a situation given all the difficulty they've had during uh the pandemic filming that they just can't schedule it and then you're gonna mix zones and everything like that um but you can't do that remotely and now on the big screen we'll show you sonequa martin green in toronto like Maybe it's a surprise, Matt. Maybe, maybe uh, we can will this into existence by saying, where is Captain Burnham and Saru and all our other friends? Well, I know in the last week, Pete, as uh, Akiva Goldsman and others were doing press for this episode and by proxy to wrap up the season, uh, it's 
Akiva Goldsman in particular spoke about how the the powers that be have kicked around the idea of the Star Trek universe crossover event at some point. And they're kind of, it's something that they discuss. They don't have a timeline. They don't have this. So maybe Pete, it's no discovery because special discovery preview. What? Didn't we just start filming? Let's roll it. And it's, it's the new time crisis and we need to get the best captains of whatever. So Pete, now that I've set that as an SDCC goal, now if they really don't talk about discovery, (laughs) then I'll just be sad. Well, at least we have the final episode of Star Trek in a consecutive run since November, Matt, to keep us warm now. Which is bonkers. I know that that consecutive run does include Prodigy, which some, uh, maybe not all, of the podcasting team, podcasting uh, listenership uh, have uh, have been uh, watching every week. But still quite a run across all those shows i think you know it's okay to not have new star trek next week is worth mentioning peaks there's always a little bit of a little bit of a listener drop off we will of course be podcasting the entire season uh next week doing a season wrap up so uh, we look forward to i look forward to that conversation with you the conversation with the listeners and so forth but uh it's been quite a run since november it is when you think back to Star Trek being on for 18 years from 1987 to 2005 and then having the uh, the overlapping of seasons at some point, but never this consecutive amount of contact of uh, content, excuse me, Um it's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, we have all this stuff still to talk about at San Diego Comic-Con. But uh, let's get through this one. Indeed, Pete. Let's head into this week's mission briefing. An asteroid swirls and swarms with activity on Stardate 1457.9 as Captain Pike a log detailing that the Enterprise and the USS Cayuga are on the edge of the Romulan neutral zone, which has existed for 100 years after a war between the Empire and the Federation. The two ships are there to supply the outposts that guard the zone. Pike chefs up leftovers into Pasta Mama as Captain Battelle joins him in his quarters She's hearing rumors the Romulans are developing new weapons. But Pike recaps their boogeymen no one's ever seen. Patel says they are to blame for some things. She misses his man-out-of-time beard, and she also has a date on the far side of the neutral zone. Not that type of date, though. He's making Asobuco next week. Surprise her before she surprises him. Indeed, Pete, she says that she's excited to see the Chris of tomorrow and things so peachy keen. I have in my notes, I bet she dies soon. Uh, this, of course, was written on the first view. Uh, the irony being she doesn't die at the end of the episode. She just breaks all our hearts. Uh, we go to the conference room where Commander Al-Sala, uh, at least Pete, that's his last name. I don't know, are you, are you aware that there's, are you aware that this character is a slight, retake of commander uh the the commander character from 
uh balance of terror uh i mean not without doing a dive hansen asala uh in balance of terror it was commander hansen so it's like i see what you've done there you know as we said many times before no harm no foul that you want to bring a little more diversity or a little more technology or whatnot but it's meant to be like hey in balance of terror they were calling him like commander pete you know pete asala that kind of thing so that's kind of their you know, I Peter won't say retcon or whatever, but it's meant to be the same guy. Uh, he's uh, being uh, asked how things are out here. Uh, how can we help you with the supply chain issues? That's Pike's question. Number one says that they're bringing matter synthesizers. They're going to field the mine ore uh, to, to help power those matter synthesizers. Um, and uh, they're going to be able to remotely uh, collect that ore all of this is what the commander has been asking for for these five years. So, so Pete, he's a happy camper getting all that stuff. Well, Spock adds Anton Chekhov's fully automated mining craft that can be operated remotely. Yes. And you know what? We have been podcasting so much stuff over the history of time and whatnot that I feel like oftentimes I can see a Chekhov's gun coming this is a nicely hidden one. Like, they're by themselves. They need stuff. They got some technology that's going to be powered by the rocks. And here's robots to help you get the rocks. Like, it's it's hidden in there for all to see, but hidden in there, I don't know, oh so, oh so carefully. With that, Pete, Lil Wesley, uh, actually, no, sorry, Lil Mott uh, is eager to come in and meet Captain Pike. It's uh, Mott Al-Salah. Not my sounds kind of familiar, Pete. And Pike helps us out by by having flashes and whooshes kind of in his subconscious there. Uh, I think that's when we can start to anticipate the uh, the information that will be coming in a moment. Pike steps away. He says he's feeling unwell and says that number one and Spock can continue with the briefing here. We see Pike walking down the corridor, stunned as number one catches up with him. Of course, she knows the secret. Is this uh boy one of the boys on the list it's revealed that ma'at is one of the cadets in the cadet accident which will uh of course paralyze pike in the future uh he's one of the cadets who does not make it out pike says that he needs to do something about this right uh, and he starts to look over his files has a computer take dictation we can sense kind of what's going on here he's going to send that letter to ma'at about yes pursue your dream but and then pete there's an even bigger interruption in the scene. Yes, he's visited by himself in a familiar uniform from the future. Leading to, in my notes, Pete, Pike Red and Pike Yellow. <laughs> we get the credits this episode. It's gold. <laughs> uh, gold, yellow. Uh, all that glitters is not yellow. Anyhow, uh, this episode is written by your showrunner, Henry Alonso Myers, and the Oscar winner, Akiva Goldsman, directed by Chris Fisher. Back in the story, we have Red Pike looking over the cutlery. Uh, we see that the uniform is not that uh, that complete copy of the crimson, uh, the crimson version from Star Trek two and six, two through six and beyond. Some of that Discovery kind of styling on the side, Discovery era styling on the side, and so forth. Uh, and he says that this is not a joke. And of course, for Yellow Pike, he's not just going to take a man's word when he suddenly shows up and says he's a doppelganger from the future. Yes, he is going to present that proof there uh, in the form of his 
uh, first pony's name, Sir Nasalot, who broke his leg in a rainstorm. Uh, Pike's parents had to put him down and he cried for a week. Um, it's hard to tell a tragic story when your horse has a silly name, so no one knows it. Slight story foul, Matt. Timey-wimey. Bad people couldn't go and observe that and have that detail. I see your point. I think this is one of the, you know, and that's why all of you at home shouldn't worry about this either. Like it's, it's establishing a story barrier, a story kind of in zone and out zone. Um, again, your point is clear. I think so too is the show's point that like, no, this is the real guy. So, uh, so why is red Pike there? Uh, he's visiting himself to uh, prevent uh, the letter being written, sent here. Uh, two cadets will die seven years from then. So now we have a, you know, ironclad date instead of about 10 years from now, which has been used throughout this season. And uh, Pike will figure out how to save everybody by warning them all not to be there, but there are unforeseen consequences. Uh, our red Pike picks up a box containing a time crystal from the Klingon monks on Boreth, of course, seen in Star Trek Discovery season two, which will show our uh, prime Pike, the dire catastrophic effects. Uh, Pike convinced the Klingons to uh, let him see uh, instead of solving it with a batleth. Uh, Prime Pike hesitates but touches it, sending him to main engineering where he is officiating a wedding. Disoriented, the bride helps him muddle through before a red alert saves the day. You know, Pete, it's not often that we see weddings in Star Trek. I, I feel like there was a classic Trek episode that had a wedding as well. But <laughs> um, we get the delightful little joke there. You know, the two of you getting married. It's you and you. You want to get married. Uh, and a red alert breaks things up, uh, much to Pike's relief. Uh, Pete, I guess he hasn't seen Balance of Terror and knows that this, this wedding is doomed. Uh, Spock calls him to the bridge. Uh, the message is that Outpost 4 is under attack by an unknown enemy. Uh, Spock seems kind of icy as he says, Uhura will update you. I guess, Pete, that was just an excuse to kind of get the story. Like, we're going to throw the story ball to Uhura because there doesn't really seem to be evidence of uh, further iciness. Uh, and, of course, Uhura in the classic uniform top. And Definitely the classic uniform top. Pete, the skirt, a little bit more, shall we say, not not jeans length of skirt. Um, I think we could all agree perhaps a bit more appropriately lower nowadays. Uh, but Ahura gives the update there, eight minutes away from Outpost 4. Uh, Ortegas uh, guesses that the, the same attackers are behind this, the Romulans. And that, of course, she's coming from the, uh, the seat uh, next to her normal spot, but uh, a familiar seat in which anti-Romulan sentiments are expressed in Balance of Terror-esque episodes. Interesting that they swapped their Mitchell and Ortegas. Pike cautions against guessing as he'd like to avoid a war. He asks Spock to join him in the ready room where he learns it is 2,266. Seven years later, it's time crystal stuff. 
Spock says time travel seems less likely than some mentally compromised version of Pike. Uh, so Pike proffers a mind meld and um, Spock sees the reactor accident six months ago, but there were no cadets nor anyone hurt. Spock posits Pike's been sent there to be in command of the Enterprise at a crucial point. In a prime future, <gasps> some other captain must have commanded it differently. The only way to discover the terrible future is to live it. Pete, do you remember several years ago when the wackadoos who hate Star Trek enough to watch it every week and then comment on it or post about it or YouTube about it, there was the perhaps one of the most bonkers theories that the designation prime timeline, that that was actually a secret creation of CBS as they tried to delineate things separate from Paramount, which at the time was still a separate company and all of that. Like just to hear Spock say prime timeline, like, Hey, you're throwing some bone. That's what we call it. The prime timeline. The shows have called that, you know, in the Kurtzman era as well, the prime timeline. But the notion that for some people that's proof of malfeasance, the prime timeline is a secret other thing. I mean, we're going to name check the Kelvin at the end of this episode. And I'm sure there's people that lost their mind in the worst possible way because of that. Back into the middle of the episode, though, they arrive at the outpost. There's lots of debris. No, no proof of a baddie. No ships skirting away. Hmm. Uh, we're told that the Farragut is a few hours away. You know, Laon's ship. Uh, Pike. Uh, thanks Uhura for the reminder. And they take a call from Al Sala on the outpost. He says outposts two, three, and eight are gone. Our shields were at maximum, but still this weapon hit us. As for the vessel, it can't be identified. Now it's gone. Uh, they, we, Al Sala, the outpost four folks are a mile deep in the asteroid. Still look at all the damage. Uh, the good news is that Ma'at wasn't there. Uh, Al Salah did see a glimpse of a ship. There was fantastic power. It's out there somewhere. Wait, something is moving fast at them now. Uh, visuals are shared, and of course, we see a Romulan bird of prey which fires at the outpost, taking them out. Yes, uh, after not responding first to Hales, it's plasma weapon destroying the asteroid before cloaking again. Spock says they must have to be visible to fire, and Ortegas bangs the war drums. The Farragut arrives, uh, captained by James Kirk, Sam's brother, on screen offering assistance. And Matt, there's the still they showed us after uh, Laon, uh, who's on his ship, and he were seen in a street in downtown Toronto in what was that February? So I did not, I did not expect Kirk to show up in this episode, but unfortunately because that secret for season two, because that got out, let's again say Pete, not because of guy on street who was being a jerk and taking pictures with his phone, because they're on the corner of a street in a major metropolitan you know, area, uh, just filming there with neither scrim nor screen nor whatever. Um, it, this was a cool, it was a very cool moment. This did not 
knock my socks off, despite the fact, Pete, as far as I know, they did keep the secret of him. It was a secret that he would appear in this episode. So good job. I did not, I did not see that coming. Uh, however, I'm not wowed and like, oh my goodness. If only Matt, they would have found some way to recreate a, a street and, uh, you know, preserve that. But all right, we got our James T. Kirk in uh, season one of Strange New Worlds. And again, we're going to meet him again for the first time. And what this does produce, too, is uh, Spock meeting Kirk again for the first time, but still never for the real prime timeline for the first time. I follow that completely. Kirk says he's ready to help. Now, do we know who did this? Spock, of course, has a lead. There's a detectable, detectable gravity presence, some microlensing of stars. You know, Pete, it's your standard physics, gravity kind of stuff, okay? Uh, the enemy ship appears to be moving very leisurely. Indeed, they might, might not be able to see us. You know, the thing that prevents us from seeing them means they can't see us. Uh, they appear to be heading towards the Romulan neutral zone. Pike says that they cannot follow. This could lead to war. Kirk suggests that they run a parallel course, of course, uh, but do this with both ships, and both ships might appear as a double reflection, uh, and this would give them some time to get some more info from Starfleet. Pike tells Spock to get Sam Kirk up there, ASAP. In the ready room, Sam tells Pike about Jim's reliance maybe even over-reliance on charm and luck. An entire deck of wild cards doesn't like to take the path everybody else does, nor lose those no-win scenarios. Pike asks if they should be worried he'd start a war. Uh, and Sam says he's a huge pain in the butt, but a fine captain, as fine a captain as Starfleet has, but likes to bend the rules all of the time. Spock pages Pike to the bridge where Uhura points to a comet ahead whose trail is reflecting an encoded signal on an unused electromagnetic frequency. The transmission stopped, but Spock made a copy of what he thinks is a feed from their bridge. Ortegas will finally get a look at Romulans. Pike orders it on screen. Dun, 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 dun. Indeed, they look like Spock. We dolly into Spock, who puts his eyebrow up, uh, obviously mimicking Balance of Terror. Pete, my only complaint is that since Mark Leonard played the Romulan in Bounce of Terror before he went on to play Spock's father. This was the perfect opportunity to get James Frain. You want to put him in a beard? You want to go, oh, there's a scar down his face or something, just so it's clear he's not Spock's father? That would have been cool. Now, conversely, I understand why they didn't in that they didn't want people to say, oh, look, that's Spock's father. Or, oh, isn't that interesting that they made a casting decision that blah, 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 as opposed to be in the moment. But beat moment ever so slightly missed in my book. I would posit that this crew of creatives didn't, um, you know, have the conversation um, that 
hey, we could do this, but is it going to overwhelm the moment? Will they eventually do balance of terror again? They won't. I don't know that it's a missed opportunity. I just think that it might have crowded the scene here. Um, so I'm fine with them not doing it, although it, it, it would have ruled. The Enterprise and Farragut flank the comet as Kirk beams aboard and hugs his brother, jealous of his ship. They discuss the pointy-eared elephant in the ready room. Ortegas wants to hear from Spock, but the similarities came as a surprise to him as well. Kirk thinks they allowed them to see uh, the Romulans did so that they can sow discord. Spock says they're overmatched. Dr. Mbenga, interestingly, not Dr. McCoy in this alternate future, uh, cautions against war for the loss of billions of lives, but Ortegas wants to kill to prevent war. Kirk doesn't want to show weakness, and Spock believes that they should attack because of his knowledge of Romulans. Kirk wants to use the particle distortion from the comet to pen them in. We get a captain's log update where the plan is to do a pincer move. Uh, and the plan, of course, is to neutralize, not destroy the enemy ship. Uh, they're going to be waiting for the visual information as, as all travel through the comet's tail because they know roughly where the ship is, but not exactly where it is. Is Kirk the reason that Pike is here? Does Kirk take them to war so pike positing that he's there to act as a break uh all pass through the tail our farragut our enterprise our farragut our enterprise but Cue nothing the disco lights <laughs> indeed um of course there is no third ship that passes through kirk says something isn't right spock agrees but wait the enemy ship the romulans they're behind the farragut the farragut starts to move uh dipping down uh pete I just want to point out that whole dip down thing. It's a good move in a nebula, like your Mutara nebulas uh, in 15 or 20 so years for Kirk there. Uh, the Farragut takes a few hits even while spinning around. Uh, and we see that the Farragut ultimately is very badly hit and is moving out of control. Kirk tells Pike to fire phasers, though they're out of range. And the Enterprise clips the left nacelle of the Bird of Prey. It fires its plasma weapon and hits Enterprise. Spock thinks that it is less effective at a longer range. So the Farragut has five minutes of life support. Ortegas can get them to it in 30 seconds. And Pike will beam everybody out in the transporter room. Laon beams over in gold, hugging Pike. It's Commander, or have you forgotten... When was the last time you talked to Una? Oh, no one can talk to her. We're not allowed contact. Is she a spy, perhaps? Hmm. Of course, of course, I remember. I'm totally not from seven years ago. Um, Pete, this too, a Chekhov's gun, which I must admit, I was just like, oh, they have a mysterious excuse for her not being in the episode. Maybe it appears in this timeline later on as opposed to a setup for a punch in the gut. I do just want to mention as well uh, in the prior scene where uh, the Romulans fire at the Enterprise, I like that the show just 
leans into it. Some of the uh, sound effect for the plasma weapon. It's like a lion's roar. Um, just a cool, like, you know, let's go for it. Let's make it sound ferocious and terrifying. Um, but back to the narrative uh, here. There's talk in Pike's quarters. Uh, Kirk saying that you flinched Pike. Caution means you don't put everything into the punch. And the enemy sees that. The, the delay of just a few seconds has hurt us, says Kirk, uh, who's such a good leader. Pike points out that his ship has been destroyed. Kirk does own that. I almost feel like, Pete, Kirk may lose other ships in the future. If there's that possibility, <laughs> that's, it's going to hurt him. Um, but he says, ultimately, that uh, none should uh, uh, underestimate the Romulan commander again. Spock pages them to the bridge where he reports the bird of prey is trailing trilithium fragments. Power supply is damaged. He doesn't think they can return to Romulus. The Enterprise can overtake them, but phasers are down and torpedo tubes are damaged. Pike has Uhura open a channel to take a risk. He offers a temporary ceasefire. Kirk did not expect that. Uhura then gets the Romulans on the horn. The bird of prey commander appears on screen, not our Sarek stand-in there, as Mark Leonard had been before. Pike recaps and offers an opportunity for both civilizations to move forward. A good faith gesture of two hours to repair and bury their dead that could lead to something better between them. The Romulan commander agrees. Ortega says they can't be trusted. Stand down, Erica. Stand down! Uh, indeed. Uh, it has to be told twice by the normally uh, the normally calm Pike there. Uh, there's a pause, and then Spock notes that the Romulans have stopped moving. Hopefully they are repairing and talking. We go to the Romulan ship where indeed they're talking about weakness. The sub-commander wants to repair all the weapons instead. The commander knew the sub-commander's uncle, uh, who as a commander himself. So, Pete, we got the commander, the sub-commander, then the uncle commander here. Very easy. No need to have names. Uh, but uncle pushed the fight. Blood was spilled, and ultimately they were made weaker by that. Pride is something they cannot afford, and choices are not made on ego. Uh, the peace game may be achieved, or the sub-commander may get war, uh, but a, a lesson of patience there. On the Enterprise, Pike offers Spock coffee, then tea. Uh, he does not drink coffee. He does not drink tea. It's almost like a Dr. Seuss no, moment there. He does drink tea. He doesn't care. Uh, he, he, he doesn't care to drink tea now. Pardon me. Um, Pike reflects on how much has gone wrong, the loss of the outpost, the loss of the Farragut, but there is something worse to come. Spock notes that the future cannot be seen, but there are instincts that can lead one through the path of the current. Pike asks about Una, uh, where she's been in a penal colony for six years. Her deception. Didn't Pike know about that even years ago? I have to admit, Pete, boom, all of a sudden Kirk is at the door. First viewing, it did not give me time to think about the deception that we already do know about at this point. So again, it's completely out there in the open. But I think done so in a way that, at least for me, it was like, what could it possibly be? Oh, more Kirk stuff, more emergency stuff. Well, I, I did put it together. We're one step 
closer now. Oh, she's not allowed contact. Why isn't she allowed this contact? Oh, penal colony. She lied. I knew what we were talking about then. Spock believed Pike uh, New Year's ago. So again, that they give us this and reference that. I think it was all there for us. When Kirk comes in, Spock excuses him himself to personally supervise the phaser repairs. Like the Romulan commander, Pike cannot afford pride. Kirk wants to explore a backup plan in case the Romulans call for reinforcements. Pike points out help is far off, but the Romulans don't know that. Can he borrow a shuttle? Uh, we see it launch and warp away. We cut to Spock in a Jeffries tube helping repair. Pete, the Scottish engineer, says help is coming. He's an engineer, not a miracle worker. Pete, is this like the same rules as the Scottish play? Can you say who it is? Uh, we'll talk later on about casting for season two. And of course, they talked about Paul Wesley playing Kirk again. That cat let out of the bag. Other people we may meet in season two have been bandied about, um, but some may not have been cast at the time that they were doing this. Hence a unseen Scottish engineer who isn't a miracle worker. There's a lot of engineers that come out of Scotland, Matt. <sighs> Uh, I will say this, the uh, actor doing the voice is uh, a somebody who has done 90% of their work uh, in voice work, whether it's animation or uh, video games, so probably not an on-screen person, whether they're going to do that you know, in the first or the last episode of the second season or anywhere in between. Uh, we go to the bridge where Mitchell reports that engines are working, but weapons are not. The two-hour mark is hit. And nothing. There's silence. Pike opens a channel. Um, have each uh, sets of repairs been completed? Neither man answers. Pike talks about the powers of partnership, faith and character. Uh, but this is a different, uh, that faith and character is a different sort of strength. Do Romulans have such strength? The commander says he tires of war. But then all of a sudden alarms are up and the Romulan fleet arrives, terribly so, taking us to an act break. Turns out the sub commander called them because their mission was to test the Federation strength and the Federation showed them weakness. But the commander points out an endless war by the definition of the word endless can never be won. And he orders the sub commander apprehended. The Romulan flagship contacts the Enterprise where a Female Praetor demands its unconditional surrender and also kneeling, giving Pike one minute. Uh, Pike, however, is not ready to surrender from his, uh, particularly since he's on his side of the line and she's on her side of the line. Uh, but it does look like help is on the way. We have Federation ships come in and Pete, in the moment, I was, I was not happy. This is another copy-paste fleet of uninspired ship designs, just like in 
Picard into the first season. And, you know, at the time, I thought Star Trek hurt us because they went and got all these cool designs for Picard season two. Now we're back to a copy-paste fleet. We'll stick a pin in that for a moment. Uh, it's Kirk who has led them here. we got a secure channel, made very clear, Pete, secure channel. The Romulans don't know what a Federation fleet looks like, so these robotic mining vessels can help. Pete, that makes the copy-paste fleet okay. Uh, Spock, quick, get us some weapons. And Kirk is kept on the line as the Praetor calls back. Yes, uh, looped in there. Pike tells her about his armada of Delta-class attack ships and sells it as a training maneuver. They were nearby. They just responded here. Uh, he confronts her on the Romulan act of aggression, which she denies. So he sends the recording they have of it. And she smugly smirks as the bird of prey they chased comes forward for a calling. Pike pauses with the Praetor to talk to the Romulan commander who confesses he did not call for backup, regretting they've met this way. And in a different reality, I might have called you friend he's accepted his fate and warmly as a romulan ken goes over to crewmates visible there touching them and then being stoically blown to bits the praetor hails again and pike unhappily takes the call she notes that she has a stronger fleet and still wants his surrender pike's weakness has shown how easy the federation can be as targets uh the enterprise is now ready to leave and the drone ships will provide cover that will give them a chance to fix the engines and run what we have is a is a good space but quite a good space battle pete a few people are knocked off their seats if only one day they would end the star trek movie with the revelation of look seat belts i'm sure it'll be one of the great star trek moments um kirk is brought on board the engines are fixed they get out just in time uh, the damage report is coming in, damage on all decks, uh, and the Romulans are broadcasting a declaration of war uh, for all to hear. Declaration of war, of course, against the Federation. Uh, hull breaches are all over, including that spot where Spock was. Spock is hurt. Pike must go to sickbay, Pete. In medical, where he sees in slow-mo the carnage up close, Lieutenant Bride seems dead spock is missing his left lower leg and badly burned nurse chapel there in blue to report massive cerebral trauma blood loss spinal fractures and no certainty of recovery but certain to never be the same I did not expect, Pete, that we would end with Pike's injury. I think that's a really great um, it's a really great use of all these different story bits to give Spock a version of Pike's injury here. Uh, Pete, it left me saying, for the sake of Spock, beep, beep. Pete, that means no. Like, oh, no. Later, Pike considers the view out the window. Future Pike, a.k.a. Red Pike, is there knowing that Yellow Pike traded his fate ultimately for Spock. Uh, Red Pike says it actually gets worse. Millions die in the war, a war that never should have been started. We all want to think there's an important future, but it's not important the way you think. 
the monks showed Red Pike something simple. Taking Spock out of the timeline is deadly. Fate of the galaxy things. Paths diverge, but uh, Spock's loss is Pike's to give. And I really love Pete. They don't they don't spend too much time on it here, but essentially the takeaway as this scene unfolds is everybody watching knows how important Spock is to the original series, to the movies, to the the, the you know to, to the first JJ film and therefore to the creation of the Kelvin universe and all those Kelvin universe adventures, it all hangs on this Spock and to kill him here takes all of that away. I think that's such a great use of our knowledge and not just like Pike, you made the wrong thing because you killed some people. It's we know the future that now is is gone because of what we've seen here. Captain Pike could never be as important as obviously the the lifelong existence of Star Trek and Mr. Spock. So, of course, what he will ultimately go on to do, reaching into what they've done on Star Trek Discovery from the next generation of healing the divide between his civilization of the Romulans. So it's no wonder that they would go in the opposite direction, that Pike chose peace, that it was the wrong call for this particular moment. And we needed James Kirk to be a warmonger and to fight them off in balance of terror so that ultimately Spock could bring the two peoples together. We have uh, red Pike at this point, opening the crystal case, but Someone's at the door. Uh, it is Kirk, for whom Yellow Pike pours a drink. Red Pike gone. Uh, Pike wonders if perhaps he and Kirk were supposed to meet. Kirk has been wondering that, too. Uh, Kirk notes that Pike tried something better, and Kirk wonders if sometimes a fight simply cannot be avoided. Perhaps this is one of those fights. Pike notes that the Enterprise would have been lucky to have Kirk on him, and Pike brings him over. He wants to hear more about Kirk. Where is he from? Well, he grew up in Iowa, and his father was on the Kelvin. Pete, not Kelvin timeline confirmed, because, of course, everything that we saw before Nero showed up was prime time. Uh, yeah, was prime time stuff, including Kelvin uh, being co, uh, its executive officer being Kirk's father, etc. Well, However, remember, Spock can't go back and send him there because Spock's dead. So wait, this episode imagine y'all yeah, look at that. This episode imagines a timeline. So the Red Pike timeline is one in which there is no Kelvin timeline as well. Look at that. Universes on top of universes and so forth. So Pete, take us back to the crystal case, won't you, after some time passes by? And he pauses here as to whether or not he's going to touch it, ultimately choosing to do that, deleting the letter. To Ma'at, we go to the ready room where he reads up on Lieutenant James T. Kirk, who appears younger in the screenshot. Uh, well, Pete, how often do you think Starfleet takes driver's license photos? You know, it's probably every couple of years. <laughs> I mean, yes, it could be like any time they pass a camera to log in with a retinal scan or whatever. But, you know, hey, it's it's all good there. Um Spock approaches uh, in the ready room. Pike is glad to see Spock. And Spock notes that Pike's demeanor has changed, uh, did 
the boy's name, Ma'at's name, pertain to the future. Pike says that some fates are inescapable, and that fate might fall to someone else if he did not uh, accept it himself. Pike knows more, and Spock wonders if that's why uh, Pike is glad to see Spock. Spock thanks him for a debt of gratitude, though for what he does not know, which is just a lovely moment. You might say it's a little writerly. I say no. You might say it's a little telepathic because Spock and alien stuff. I say no. It's just a lovely moment in the moment. Uh, and Pete, they are special to each other. That shared admiration coming across. Over a jaunty tune, Pike goes to the bridge and makes a memory with each named crew member. But Ohura gets a message from Starfleet Command that Captain Battelle is beaming over, and they want him and number one in the transporter room. There, she apologizes, and two red shirts take number one into custody for violations of the anti-genetic manipulation laws as an Illyrian. She has orders, and Pike grabs a red shirt, but number one tells him not to. As she's known, it might happen for years. Battelle again apologizes, and Pike tells them it isn't over because they were renewed for season two before season one even streamed. As they beam out, the red shirt past Una looks up on the transporter pad, and her eyes go white. Pete, we have a tactical analysis of this week's threats. Let's start with an easy one, Pete. Fate can't be escaped. The importance of this episode, I had warned people from watching any of the promotional material. Nothing in there dealt with uh, Pike from the future. It was very clear it was Romulan stuff. They didn't show you that. Um, but you, you could tell it was audio only stuff. What, what is this invisible threat Ohura was there in the distinct top from the original series, but to do this in such a way, and, and I did know about future Pike. I did not know about the, the red uniform, which I was really pleased that they went with and that he would find a way to survive. Of course he would. I think it was a little bit of a cop out that, oh, you write a bunch of letters and no one goes to the, the party and dies um, to change it. But OK. And then that future Pike tells us every time you change it, Spock always dies. So the overwhelming resonance becomes you care about Spock. We know from the original series and the way that they retconned in with uh, it's the menagerie, right? It's the Pike one where Spock goes rogue and goes save him. Or Yes, the, the menagerie is the two-parter yeah. that uses And it's cage the cage footage. that's the pilot that they take the footage from. Right. Um, that Spock has a very deep level of care for the character um as as much as a vulcan can uh in his former captain so you know what have um 
Henry Alonzo Myers and Akiva Goldsman done here, they've deepened uh, all of that. Particularly, you know, from the perspective that the menagerie is now watched through past eyes, which is to say like, oh, they made a thing. They were behind in the schedule. So they made a two-parter that only required, you know, 40 minutes of new footage. And now you get two episodes and that's why they made it versus you know back in 1966 1967 you go whoa they shot like a completely different show with a different crew and cut you know like all that um but so that show kind of stood as it needed to stand like spock did a thing because he thinks highly of this guy this episode says one of the reasons he thinks highly of him is because spock senses he owes pike his life in a certain sense so of course in chronological view here which is you know difficult to go back and say ah the menagerie is after this episode but it is um of course spock is going to answer that call for the man who has saved his life uh pete taking uh, more than a couple lives are the romulans here pete northerners you can tell by the ridge there as opposed to the the, the, <laughs> the southerners if you really really want to make that distinction all the way back to classic trek but definitely northern ridge for uh, ridge four-headed romulans causing trouble here and Quite a few of them, you know, thought we'd just get the bird of prey, that we get an entire armada um, and then, you know, not just what we have in terms of a commander and a sub commander, but even reaching to a female praetor. Yeah, and I think. On the one hand, for recap purposes, it would have been nice if they gave us, you know, names for these people, but if the show is trying to mimic the distance that, uh, that the original kept from the audience, I think actually in, in balance of terror, the sub commander had a name, but regardless to sit and go commander, sub commander and creator, um, it makes us clear that these are an other, these are not Federation friends or Federation adjacent and all, all that. Um, I like that the commander is willing to consider peace um that that there is that that glimmer out there which of course we know in the kurtz trek era uh that that will be successful as you said pete due to spock's efforts and then in the far far off future of discovery uh it's even more successful and of course your sub commander can never be trusted and uh the praetor all right you know she's demanding people kneel in front of her and she's got this big bad fleet and she kills the commander in uh cold blood pete a threat that we will have to discuss not only in theories but maybe maybe we meet the threat in season two i don't know how the different timelines will work but who is it who snitched out number one that's what i want to know i mean that's something we really have to consider uh is it laon has she somehow either inadvertently outed Una, um, as she's gone on this, uh, you know, off-screen journey to try to find uh, not Newt's family? Uh, is it somebody that has, uh, you know, more malevolent feelings against Una on the Enterprise? Is it somebody like Spock? Captain, you have broken rules and I cannot abide this, even though I like her. But logic dictates. We'll have to see. Pete, Captain Battelle, it makes me sad for her to be on this threat list. Pete, she's only doing what they told her to do, uh, but there she is taking away our prime number one. 
And it should be remembered, Pete, as I'm sure you know and all listeners know, you know, the the TOS fate of number one, um, not discussed in any way. This is a character who, you know, is as legacy as anybody else due to showing up in the cage and all of that. But we don't know where that road ends. If they want to shock our socks off and say, mm-hmm. you know, that she hasn't come back uh, after the the trial of this to that, that she's put at the end of season two. I'm certainly not arguing for that, but it it's on the table. It's possible all through the hands of Battelle. I mean, she told us in her only other scene in this episode, she had a date on the far side of the neutral zone. Who knew it was going to be on the same starship and arresting their first officer? Let's use our long-range sensors to scan for some theories. Uh, Pete, here's one thought of an alternate Prime Us timeline. Does showrunner Pete, if, if, for some terrible reason, Star Trek Strange New Worlds was canceled after the first season, would they have included that number one ending, or would it have been, Pike is a happy guy, the end? I think the difference right now, and we've talked on our podcasts throughout the years, how Star Trek is best when its back is against the wall. There's a confidence in the Star Trek brand right now, and even more so after this first season of Strange New Worlds. Um, you know, we saw the the first two episodes at the gold carpet premiere, and boy, had you told me, hey, See that lady that's uh, having breakfast with Pike in the first episode? She's going to return at the end of the season and arrest number one, who's genetically engineered. Wait, what? This after they've done their Balance of Terror homage uh, with a time crystal that they brought over from Star Trek Discovery, uh, pursuing the vision of him, uh, Pike, uh, meeting his fate from Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, I just, I think... They've really, really gone for it here, and it's all worked. It's all enhanced this multi-show universe they've built. Well, and in some of the press in the last week, which, by the way, Pete, you know, we have over the years taken uh, CBS All Access slash Paramount Plus Access PR to task, particularly when they were vaguely threatening us with Un, uh, unstated consequences if we reference Star Trek in the name of our little podcast that we do for fun. Um, but in the last week, so many outlets had stories, positive stories about this episode. You know, not just Variety, Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, although you get those three, that's off to a good start. You know, uh, Rolling Stone, others, others like that. So, there's a great confidence in the show right now and a great buzz for the show right now. So Pete, I just wanted to mention that uh, amidst some of the theory discussion here that, uh, that the, the reputation of the show is looking good. New Romulan weapons says captain Battelle. Could she be one of them? Um, that's tempting. There's this tension between, is it, was that set up for like, that's right. We're headed toward balance of terror. Uh, or was that just set up for season two? Heck, Pete, if you're right, why not be both? What about the seven-year mission now of Strange New Worlds? It certainly will be interesting. Um, you know, as a, 
to see what the larger scale um, picture of the show is, to tie back to the comments from before about some of the press, to have Akiva Goldsman and others out there talking about the show, they've stated there is this hope if there's enough time, if there's enough interest and so forth, why not slowly merge this show into TOS? So could that happen over seven seasons a year per season? Sure. If things are going really good, you want to tell me they're going to do a half a year per season or something like that. Um, but clearly they have a long-term vision. And I think, Pete, they're helped by an endpoint, which is the beginning of TOS. The Remans are referenced here by the Romulan commander. The sub-commander's uncle served with him. I thought that was a nice retcon. It was, particularly, you know, so much of TOS was just kind of made up as they went along or, you know, or, or whatever it was. It was just, who knew we were going to visit the Romulans again one day, that kind of thing. But to to revisit things as we do now and to, to tighten up the Remans, to, to do things like that, to have the Kelvin reference and so forth, it really, um, it, it just strengthens the overall Star Trek universe. So season two will be not only the search for Cybok, but also for Una. Yes, and I would have thought, uh, to be honest, Pete, I, w- I-, I thought that when you were waving people like me off of the season finale, I was like, that's because Cybok shows up. The fact that the show has two major irons in the fire, um, Cybok and Una, as you reference, let alone, you know, do we need to deal with that in episode 201 or is there the latest thing? And we say, but wait, what about the itch of this? What about the itch of that? And let that extend further into the season. It's a great narrative place to be. Well, what if those two storylines, two incarcerated people could cross? That's a fun idea, uh, particularly against the backdrop of the kind of clear, um, discrimination being put forth towards una and we know why we understand the con stuff and so forth and and indeed pete maybe that's that lends some credence to your um you know what you had mentioned earlier that it might have been laon who turned her in laon who has this blood debt due to the you know due to con and all of that um i would i would add to it to to go to this notion of the um the security person who has white eyes and so forth Another thing that came from some of the press discussions in the last week was the idea that there's a monthly Star Trek showrunner roundtable, A, to make sure that you're not bumping into other people's stuff, and B, to kind of find some areas where there could be some transfer. Uh, So to hear that there's this person out there interceding, helping, hurting, whatever it is with Una, does make me think of... Wesley and the Travelers and all of that from Star Trek Picard, where I feel like that something like that could be a crossover without it being, wait, the time, the big time crystals brought forth Discovery and Enterprise and Picard for the big showdown of showdowns. Like that could be a little, a little thing there. Well, we do know that there will be Klingons in season two. That's been publicly discussed by the showrunners. They also mentioned once this episode was available that the Scotty actor had not been cast yet and that there will be other people to meet in season two. I I do think it'll be fun to see where they go with that stuff, but I'm in no rush to be like, they must, 
you know, they, they must do the fan service thing. Like, let that happen organically as it happens. It was fun to kind of get long-term Scotty here in this episode, but then unseen. Um, I hope that season two does not become about, you know, assemble the crew, because frankly, that's kind of, I think emotionally, that's where I went towards the end. For the second season of Picard, in between the announcement that the TNG crew was coming back and the end of the second season, it kind of was like, well, okay, you're kind of losing a bunch of, you know, people from Picard season two that I really dug, but can't wait to see the people I like the most because they'll take me back to when I was eight through 13. So no rush to get to Scotty at all. With that, Pete, let's open Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. As always, Pete, we start with our Twitter poll where there were no spoilers in the poll. Uh, which Pike culinary adventure would you best enjoy? Uh, Pasta Mama got 32.4%. Also, Buko got 10.8%. Cabin Drinks got 10.8%. And then, Pete, the meal that Captain Battelle has enjoyed on multiple occasions, breakfast, 45.9%. Some replies there. We have Andre Yeager at Dr. Polo in 1983. Love this episode. Perfect way to end the season. Do I have one? Uh, I do have one question, though. Is green the universal color for all stones related to time? Asking for a friend. So, Pete, I'll put that to you. Um, clearly. Clearly. Uh, the time stone. The time crystals. Uh, if Star Wars does a time gem. I, God, I hope they never turn to time travel. Um, yeah, it's got to be green. Uh, Pete, next up, the tweet that you had referenced. I, I don't look at the tweets until we, we start to record here. So uh, full credit to JT Adkins. JTA is me, uh, who says only two odd things in this episode. The selfie stick, super wide angle shot of Pike walking through sick, by, sick bay. Nice try, but didn't work for me. I would agree. I hate that as a camera move where it's like the camera's attached to the person. And then what's up with this red shirt? Uh, is there a dagger of the mind uh, neural neutralizer up there? Yeah, that is legit full on. I don't know how I missed it on first view. Maybe because I was stunned that we were saying goodbye to Rebecca Romaine and and all that, uh, if only for the short term. Yeah, that security person is looking up and has creepy white eyes. And I'm going to press retweet for that right now. So uh, great catch there on JT's part. Next up, James the Sagacious, Big Killin on Twitter. So this dude will get more handsome and witty, asking for a friend. Uh, it was the best Trek offering to date, pulled from decades of world building, but just over the top, amazing episode of sci-fi TV. This, uh, art, uh, this art is at its best when you have to second guess yourself. I had to pause and ask myself if things were out of sequence several times. If you're gonna take away Hammer, double up, double up on Pike, well done. Easily the most rewatchable episode for me. Can't wait for season wrap discussion. Next, we hear from Spider Ham Lincoln, Tess LC, Tess LC 139. Well, that was some episode. Not time travel so much, maybe, as it was living a future vision. Great to see Pike talking to himself. And the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan era uniform was a delight to see again. I love the alternate path that some people took and how some of it, Una, was inevitable. The end scene reminded me of the season two finale of Lower Decks. Yeah. Uh, Pete, I will add, hashtag bring back Captain Mom. Back to Spider-Ham Lincoln. Nice to hear a familiar Scottish brogue as Hemmer's alternate replacement and the surprise character we thought we wouldn't see until season two was a great addition to the story. I also like that Spock's death was that particular timeline's tipping point. This was a stellar finale. Best episode so far. Have mercy. 
Next, Jackie Wolf. That's at Jackie Wolf on Twitter. I found myself overwhelmed with all the amazing throwbacks to classic Trek in this episode. From the red uniform, my fave, to Uhura's green earrings, to the ill-fated wedding day for an unsuspecting young couple. My head was spinning with all the throwbacks in this episode. Although we got to see some personal growth in the alternate timeline, Ma'an's a hugger now. We also see hints of a dark path that the Federation appears to be just beginning in the prime timeline. I'm sure we'll see more of Una's story in Season 2, and I'm sure that Trek will continue to draw parallels to our own society's ills in the process. Finally, here's a really wild idea for the next season of Discovery. Can we get a glimpse of Talos IV 900 years in the future, uh, where we see the descendants of Pike and Vina on the surface having repopulated and built it? Uh, Pete, I know this. That would be Those would be handsome-looking people 900 years in the future. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Next up, uh, Pete Moore from JT Adkins. I guess uh, sometimes Twitter does stuff out of order. I don't know. JT Adkins says this. How much did I like this? I don't have time for rewatching anything. And I watched this twice and watched TOS Bounce of Terror all on Thursday. Wow. TV is much faster paced TV uh, now compared to 1967. No time now to stare and wonder at the view screen. I'm glad this series took Pike's traumatic knowledge of his future seriously and crafted this episode to create giant reasons to get him past trying to change his future. Anson Mount was great, and he got to wear a variant of the best Star Trek uniform uh, uniform ever as old Pike, the uniform and the movie that saved Star Trek. Since we are reliving Balance of Terror, I secretly hope that James Frain would be the Romulan commander and uh, Star Trek Stranger World's Stan would be the same sub-commander since they were uh, Sarek, Stan, and TOS. Good thing they didn't do it, but still. When Sam Kirk said his brother doesn't like to lose, I really wanted him to mysteriously produce an apple from nowhere and take a bite out of it. <laughs> Again, it's best. I always don't get my wishes. Uh, I love the plethora of Balance of Terror callbacks, the original dialogue, the classic music cue for a look. They're pointy-eared. Also in both Stranger Worlds and TOS, the starboard seat of the navigation helm weapons front station <laughs> sure makes people hate Romulans. <laughs> well said, JT. Uh, I'm glad they didn't bother to explain how old Pike traveled back in time. I had no need for temporal mechanics. Loved how wildly topsy-turvy the Enterprise came out of warp. Reminds me of Kelvin timeline warp, which I like. Warp speed should seem wild and unpredictable. This has been a tremendous series and a tremendous season finale. Now let's get Una back, folks. Next up, Strange New Tweets, K-C-L-Y-L-E-1 on Twitter. What an episode. I really thought Pike would find a way around his fate, but apparently not, although it could still happen. Great performances and a nice setup for the openings next season. New sort of faces and voices. That was an odd choice. Just an all-around great show. Uh, And... Moving on here to Jeff Gentry, that's X-Force 11, uh, gives the GIF in reply to the uh, the poll about which breakfast. It's a Ron Swanson GIF. There has never been a sadness that can't be cured by breakfast food. Uh, Pete, that too is something I think discovered by Captain Battelle in her visits. To the email inbox we go, Pete. First one up, Pete, is uh, from Robert B. Newman, who says, Enjoy this show, but already... Uh, having already seen the current episodes, do we really need a read-through? I'd rather more commentary, insights, and missed Easter eggs and a rehash. Otherwise, please continue raising that Starfleet flag. Pete, that from Bob in PA. What say you? Uh, Bob, I appreciate that sentiment, but we've you know considered that and been told again and again by the vast majority of our listenership on Patreon, out in the open, 
uh, keep these recaps. So apparently we have enough to say and people have said enough that they want to hear this from us. I would also add, I don't think that the length of our recaps impacts the length of our theorizing and analysis and so forth. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about other things, you know, camera moves, costumes, things of that sort. Pete, we hear from Stacy, uh, that is, of course, uh, Stingray, a.k.a. TrekGirl88 on Twitter, who sent in the following email. Uh, Hi, Matt and Pete. Thanks for saying you appreciate my emails. We do. I was excited when I realized I could send my thoughts in this way, since I clearly cannot be contained to the character limits of Twitter. And oh boy, do I have thoughts about this week's episode. Holy wow, that, my friends, is how you do a season finale. From the previously on, Una agrees with Matt. What if we make our own fate? Maybe I can get on board with that if number one thinks so, too. I love how they start so many episodes with Pike cooking. He works magic, even works magic with leftovers. That initial scene with Commander Al-Sala was funny, but also had an eye roll moment when Pike says, just says, you're welcome. After the commander said the solutions uh, Pike had were what he'd been asking for for five years. Ah, ain't that bureaucracy for you? I gasped when I uh, first saw future Pike. I initially thought it was future Ma'at. Didn't notice until my second watch that present day Pike straightens his shirt like he needs to be more presentable for Admiral Pike. Not that I blame him. Elder Pike looks damn good in that red uniform. I love that the story future Pike used as proof he is Pike was a childhood story that included a ridiculously named pony, though I think Sir Nasalot is adorable. Of course, when I was a kid, we had a cat named Pookie after Garfield's teddy bear, so I may be biased about silly pet names. I love the crossover from Discovery with the Time Crystal. And that future Pike had to convince the Klingons to let him talk to himself, ha, rather than solve the issue with the bat left. Then, whoops, Pike drops uh, into a public speaking situation, of course. I have to say, I would have expected him to be better at winging it. Thank goodness for that red alert. Like in Spock Amok, I appreciate that the person in the unusual circumstance tells someone instead of keeping it to themselves. And that Spock is the one he goes to, more of what we've seen in previous episodes. They know how... Uh, each other, they know each other well enough to trust and it takes uh, and take advice. Captain Kirk didn't expect to see him to season two. Loved Pike asking Sam to spill the tea on Jim. Doesn't uh, like to take the path everyone else does. Doesn't like to lose. Is a pain in the ass. Bends the rules. I expected mention of his cheating on the Kobayashi Maru. La'an's a hugger now. Made some serious progress in therapy, I'd say. Where's number one that she can't communicate on a secret mission? Love or her is tone when she says the Romulans are calling. There it is. Kirk would have blown them out of the sky. His hot-headedness was uh, needed to prevent war with the Romulans. And he may cheat, but he sure can think outside the box. I had no idea what he was going to do and loved him returning with the mining drone ships. Oh my God, Spock, another gasp. Phew, Pike's face when he saw his friend. Love that Pike chats with Kirk before returning to his time. Pike's thoughtfulness is an asset, except when it isn't. Then Pike is back in his time, moving about the bridge, checking in with everyone. Is it just me, or is that a weird choice for the music playing when he did that? And it seems like the episode is over, and all is right with the world. Another gasp as Una is arrested. Didn't expect uh, to come home to roost this season. Absolutely cannot wait for season two. Pete, that from Stacy. Well, we love that Stacy emails, and don't you be contained by those tweets. You can certainly be like Stacy and do that. Pete, let's now hear an audio message from Kevin. Hello, Fantastic Geek. At long last, I'm recording feedback. 
Uh, most of the time, I've been too far behind in watching to do so, but I've listened to most of your podcasts. I'm a quiet supporter, a Patreon member, and a big fan with a PH. And uh, actually, my my handle is Soccer Files Canada with a PH. I wasn't copying. Uh, it's just a pun. Uh, I want to say how fabulous this first season of Strange New Worlds is. They didn't get weighed down by the baggage of the canon, but instead used it so creatively. The show has an ease about it which comes through, especially in Anson Monk's performance, but really the whole crew that gelled so well. I'm so glad he was able to put the embarrassment of Inhumans behind him, where I felt he and the promising cast was set up by poor writing and poor production value. Uh, This season just got better and better. Uh, They hit the ground running, and going back to the mostly episodic formula is what made it successful for me. I actually really liked the Star Trek Enterprise series until it fell into the Zindi plotline. And although Discovery has its merits, even with the whispered dialogue starting to bug me after Admirable Fred meant it, and yes, I did say Admirable Fred, uh, the best episodes there are the episodic ones too. I'm so glad that, uh, uh, sorry, I'm so sad that uh, Strange New Worlds is over so quickly, but at least I can feel that Star Trek is back on track. I may even like Pike more than, ooh, dare I say it, Kirk and Picard? I can see why Spock went to such lengths for uh, Pike in the menagerie. Keep up the great podcasting, guys. Bye. Pete, such kind words there from Kevin. Uh, I love that turn of phrase there that Strange New Worlds has used canon but did not get weighed down by it. I think the thing they've smartly done, Discovery, the the circumstances, because of the nature of that production, always tend to be dire. And, and that's a flavor, and I think it works for them. The ease that Kevin says that Strange New Worlds has It's not that they don't have universe-altering consequences. They do, but we see some more slice-of-life stuff, hence the number of times we've seen Pike cook in his cabin and, you know, want to build relationships with the crew that way. And then even, too, the idea that, you know, Pike is moving up there on people's lists of, Kirk and Picard. I mean, Matt, could you have ever thought that? It's it's a credit to Anson Mount. It's a credit to the construction of the show. And I know that uh, Kevin commented on that too, liking liking how the show was structured. And uh, I just wanted to mention that I saw in the last week, Akiva Goldsman succinctly called it episodic stories, but serial characters. And I just thought, that's a great phrase. Somebody get that man a writing Oscar. But yes, that... <laughs> I, I, I know we've played with the whole thing of, you know, two years ago he was saying, oh, it's going to be completely episodic. And we were like, yeah, right. You know, Um, but I think that's a great way to look at it. The stories are episodic. The characters' lives, of course, are not. They're ongoing. Shall we hear from Admirable Fred? Indeed. Let's press go on that now. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1. Episode 10, the season 1 finale. Wow, what a great episode. And I gave it a 9.7. So that will be on IMDb a 10, because you only can give whole grades there. 
a lot of nice nostalgia revering. What I liked very much is that at a certain point you hear the chief engineer with a Scottish accent, but no one is, is saying um, Scotty or Mr. Scott or Commander Scott. The name is not mentioned. You only hear the accent. Very nicely done. And as a big Orphan Black fan, of course, I liked the doubles. Captain Pike and Lieutenant and Captain Kirk. If you see the ending of this episode, you can assume or can predict that Kirk would take over the Enterprise. But I really doubt that. Big changes. Una gone. Pike perhaps not the captain of the Enterprise anymore. Hmm. Really wonder what they will do. And since everything of season 2 is in the can, they have to keep the lid on the secrets. Nice to see Captain Battelle back, played by Melanie Scrifano. And as said before, or actually said, as close as Pike was sitting next to her, only difference is she didn't kiss me, uh, next to her in a Winona Earp fan convention. So that makes it always very special uh, to see an actor like that and I really talked to her but she didn't play the best role at the end taking Una away the situation with the Romulans is set and I think that will be a main topic for the second season so looking very much forward to that and Matt and Pete thank you very much for this ride this season greetings all the best Fred from the Netherlands Pete, the Admiral's wisdom always appreciated there, and it, he did make me he, he did make me reconsider something. How, for, for what length of time do you think Una will be gone? And let's not forget that there were multiple episodes this season where it's like, Una, you go there, the fun story's going here, or oh no, Una's been kidnapped, and things of that sort where... You know, yes, you have the, the the actress and so forth, but she was certainly not front and center for portions of the season. She does get that vanity credit, and you know, internationally, she's the biggest name on the show. When I describe this show to people who are not Star Trek fans, I start with, "Oh, Rebecca Romaine. Remember, Rebecca Romaine Stamos." is on it. Oh, oh yeah, I know the supermodel lady. Okay. Now I, now I can figure out that there's a star of the show. Um, could it perhaps have been pandemic related? Might it still be given that we're not out of it? Cause a lot of people are choosing to be silly. Um, it's possible. Uh, could it have been other concerns another filming project that maybe as, Again, somebody who's had as much bankable success as she had went to the producers and said, hey, I, I want to be in this. We were you know, involved with Discovery and, and now we've we've done the spinoff here, but I just can't make myself as available as you'd like. I guess time will certainly tell. I mean, it's it's clearly the number one thing pulling us to season two. Um, again, I think there's some story merit to like not resolving it in 201 just to, to draw the to draw the uh the tension there pete in terms of drawing out uh other experiences perhaps based on fred's recommendation we'll check out winona earp uh, and see more of the captain battelle actress well with a couple of uh you know holes in our schedule coming up i may need to check that out 
Pete, this entire season, as well as next week's season-long wrap, don't want don't to miss out on that, dear listeners, but the entire season has been brought by those who support us on patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, keeping us listener-supported as we warp through all this enjoyable content. So our thanks, as always. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to choose from. Takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door. Can't contribute right now? Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or review in seconds, minutes, and it'll help us out just as much. Pete, let's keep this conversation going, this Star Trek conversation, as we reach the end of all this Star Trek content. For now, how can people be in touch with you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-12,628. K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, Followers can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. Looking ahead to tomorrow, Marvel Movie Monday, when we will talk Thor 4, uh, a.k.a. Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, then, of course, next weekend, Ms. Marvel on Saturday and wrapping up Star Trek Stranger Worlds on Sunday. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Someone told me I had better places to be, so I'm trying to be there.